What's the time? It's total reboot time. What's the year? It's 2022. What's the year we're talking about? 1982. What's the season? Summer. What's the theme of this podcast? Summer movies from the year 1982. The most crazy, hectic, psycho, blockbuster summer in history. Hi, my name is Cameron James. And sitting opposite me over the medium of Zoom is Alexi Toliopoulos. Hi, it's awesome to see your journalistic skills of the who, what, why, when and where rubric, mm-hmm. Cameron, coming back into your everyday freaking life. Yep, I now only talk in reverse pyramid sentences. <laughs> I give the most hectic info up top and yes. then I end with the most boring detail. Who your freaking co-host is? What the hell, dude? That's rude. (laughs) Well, Cameron, it is a pleasure to pod with you. It's a pleasure to go back in time to 1982 Mm -hmm. once Mm -hmm. again for Mm -hmm. our mini-series about Blockbuster Summer. And I think I've kind of come up with a theory at the moment. I've been concocting my mission statement, my goal with this mini-series about... Why the frick we still care about this one period of movie summer from 40 freaking years ago? That is exciting. You've been working on your mission statement. I've been working on my missionary position. (laughs) And how's that going, honey? Really badly, really badly. I can't get a good rhythm going. Um, Ultimately, I'm too lazy and I prefer just, you know, cowgirl style. Yeah. And you love to be that old cowpoke laying back and relaxing. Old fucking prospector laying back in the hay. (laughs) Prospector? More like prostator, I heard. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) All right, so what's your theory? Well, I'm trying to kind of get to it, but I think what my brain is ticking over at the moment, why we love it and why it's known as like a great summer at the movies, it's because I think it's the first summer that resembles what movies are today. Hmm. Okay. Where it is big genre blockbusters taking over from, you know, the the artistic movement of the American New Wave only ended a few years earlier. And I think we've kind of seen some of the auteurs of that time moving into blockbuster filmmaking. And especially the movie we're talking about today, Conan, I think we're seeing a response to the really the first big blockbusters like Star Wars coming out. And then the wake of in between the year of Star Wars coming out and Empire Strikes Back coming out. And then two years later, stuff like Conan, which is definitely a response to it, coming out. We've had a slew of so many shitty, like Roger Corman style, cheapo knockoffs like Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a remake of the Magnificent Seven, but done in space on the cheap, like two million bucks. So many of like those cheapo movies being thrown out and so many like fantasy movies. But Conan being the kind of first one that is a legitimate response aimed at a slightly older audience than Star Wars as they've grown up in the past few years. And capturing that same kind of illusions of magic and might and kind of fantastical elements of a big blockbuster. And I think that's kind of why we're stuck in this now where we look back at this because it's the first time that we're seeing response to blockbuster filmmaking and how to grow that out and like the kind of big business, almost the machine of blockbusters coming into play. 
Mm, yeah, that's a good. I mean, that's a good point. In many ways, it is the birth of the modern multiplex, the mo- modern cinema. In many ways, it is also the death, the downfall of the art form that I like to call the flicks. <laughs> As you've been known to do. I'm looking at Battle Beyond the Stars. I'd never heard of this. Fucking Robert Vaughn's in this, kind of playing mm. the same character that he played in Magnificent Seven. <laughs> That's so weird. I didn't even realise that. That's crazy. I love Robert Vaughn. He's um one of my favourite silver screen men of this era and of, like, mm. I guess the 70s as well. There's something just so funny and camp about him that I just like. I also love him in Basketball, the film from He's- the 1990s. <laughs> He's a very boxy guy. Like he's got a boxy head and a boxy little body. I love him. Yeah, he's great. Now that's. I mean, I got to check out Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, but of course, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Conan, the Barbarian, mm-hmm. which is a film Conan. that I had not seen until today. Hell yeah! Let me ask you about your relationship with this flick. What is it? I love it. I love this movie. I I think it's probably where we differ most, hey, is that I love fantasy and you could give two freaking schlarts about it, dude. That's true. I don't, think, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about any fantasy ever. I watched Game of Thrones for the first few seasons and I was into it. And then I just hit a wall where I just like, mm. between seasons, I just was like, oh man, I can't go back to that world. I can't go back there. <laughs> like, I don't know what, it, like I can get along with it for a bit. When I was a kid, I was, I guess every kid you're, is a bit intrigued by magic and mm. wizards and shit like that. And when I was, particularly when I was a kid, there was um, the sword in the stone. I really loved yeah. that. And some of yeah. those other Disney animations like the Black Cauldron and um, Sleeping Beauty and all that kind of shit that involves mm. fantasy and magic and that era of knights and medieval adjacent shit. Um, I liked all of that stuff, and I read the I read like the Quest of King Arthur when I was a kid, mm. and then I just never really reengaged with sword and sandal epics or anything fantasy. The closest I've come is science fiction, I guess, through the years mm. until Game of Thrones, and again, I couldn't finish that because I just honestly I hit a roadblock where I was just like, I just don't care about people called like Gawain and mm. um, I don't care about dragons and any of that shit. I just can't do it. So this film has existed on the periphery of my knowledge for a very long time. Mm. And as an Arnie fan, I probably should have gone in on it at some point, but li- literally like the top, the front cover of the video has kept <laughs> me away. <laughs> Like it's that man, beautiful airbrushed painting with his yes. sword held high. I can't, and look, I kind of like that style in like mm. a sort of cheesy '80s airbrushed mode, where it's like a real muscly dude with his sword, and then like a hot babe kind of crouching by his by his knees. Like it's kind of fun and cool and camp, but I've just there's something about it that has always kept me away from it. I'm trying to figure out what really draws me in about them. I think for me, 
I've always loved fantasy. Like, fantasy books were the first things that I grew up reading. Uh, like, The Wizard of Earthsea and stuff like that. And also the films that you mentioned. All those animated films were really important for me growing up. Particularly Black Cauldron. Particularly Sleeping Beauty. So glad you called that out. Because I think that is, far and away, the best-looking Disney animated film mm. of all time. It's such so like a gorgeous realization of almost like those stained glass windows that we associate with like the medieval era and like those mm. kind of old school fantasy storybooks come to life. And the other part of it for me was growing up watching a lot of the sword and sandals epics like Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, um, of those Ray Harryhausen uh, stop motion skeletons and Argonauts and stuff. Just absolutely fucking frothed that shit as a kid, like going crazy watching them. And that's them. a general, like, like two generations before us, that stuff. That's mm. like baby oh, boomer at least, shit. Man. Yeah. That's like our, my dad. I remember my dad was like, oh, yeah, I used to watch Jason and the Argonauts when, <laughs> when I was a kid. And I, I, I've never seen any of those. I've seen one of the Sinbad films. Mm. Um, oh, I first love kid. the Sinbad films. <laughs> I've seen- <laughs> yeah, great bit. Absolutely yeah, no. stellar I've seen, bit. I've seen, uh, no, I've seen one of the Sinbad films. I can't remember which <laughs> one, but I have a feeling it... It didn't have the classic Ray Harryhausen skeletons. Mm. That's that's Jason the Argonauts. But mm. it had some kind of stop motion, like multi-armed deity yeah. that he's fighting. And it has like swords, like six arms and six swords. I remember yeah. that. And I remember that's a Harryhausen that, joint as well. That like sounds really Harryhausen. And it, like, yeah. it's, it is cool, but I just don't think I ever went deeper on it as a kid. I don't know why. I think, yeah, I don't know why I didn't. But but it is cool. Like, I, I'm not, I don't think it's. You're not my, yucking the yum. We get I'm it. Not, I'm not yucking the yum. I think it's cool, but I've just never gone fully in on it. You, you're not yucking the yum, but you never fucked the fun either. So, you know, you're not quite there. <laughs> I think as well, partly, we have a small age gap between us. And I think mm. that in that critical age gap, I was just young enough to be fully into the Lord of the Rings films as they were being released. And mm. you were maybe just aged out of it being like the monoculture that totally. you were steeped in. I saw the first Lord of the Rings movie at the cinemas and I remember how packed the cinema was. Like it's a very mm-hmm. a visual memory that I have from my childhood is that I couldn't even sit in a chair. I had to sit on the stairs in the cinema at Hoyt's, Charlestown, and Newcastle. Like, nowadays, I would never do that because of various codes. (laughs) There's building codes. (laughs) But then I never saw the other two in cinema. Like, I just... Mm. Maybe I was a bit too old and I thought it was weird or whatever, but, yeah, I don't know. I guess I can't even remember what the fuck I would have been into at that time. Like, was it just comedies, maybe? Maybe I was just more into comedies. Yeah. Do you know what? The closest I've ever come to loving a fantasy film is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's it's a great movie. The, that's probably the one that I've like, that's my touchstone for this yeah. type of film. 
Yeah, I mean, it is silly stuff. Like, Terry Gilliam, he's someone that I love, and I love all his fucking actual fantasy movies, like Jabberwocky and the elements in, like, The Fisher King. This is, like, the kind of stuff that when I went to film school, I had this realization going, this is a shit that I really would love to make, even though it's not, like, that deep. I guess it's really deep within me, even though, like, the stuff that I normally go for is, like, gangster film, urban dramas, like, those kind of or even art house movies or whatever. But I think what's really deep within me is that I'm a pure fantasy nerd that just gets off on, like, the cheese of it all, the exposition. I love expository dialogue that's just like, have you ever heard of Gawain the Gringogold, who is one of the greatest warriors of all the seven seas? Of course, when Atlantis was swallowed up by the ocean, he was the last Atlantean. So I'm like, oh, kill me, kill me. I love this. I want you to fucking kill me with your big tr- Trident or whatever you've got. Like, I just love that shit. I find it really funny. I don't, like, I just always love hearing that go, like, oh, I love this. You know what you love, motherfucker? You love the fucking Tom Bombadil of it all. I love Tom Bombadil. I think I would make a great Tom Bombadil. Like, just anything like that. I'll never read, like, any Lord of the Rings book. I'll never read the Silmarillion. But knowing that shit exists and there's guys out there that love it, I'm like, yeah, I love that. I love, love, love that. I love it being adapted to the screen where it's streamlined and they have to put all those things in. Yet there's some nerd who's like, oh, that yellow feather actually represents Tom Bombadil's uh, virginity hidden over there. I'm like, yes, yes, I love, I love, love, love. And then a bunch of the movies that I made at film school, like my shorts, they were all in this fantasy mode. They're all like ambitious, big fantasy adventure movies Hmm. for like comedy style, like 10, 12 minutes or whatever. So I just think they're so, just love like the practicalness of them all. I just love, love, love this shit. And Conan is for me like top tier of that all. (laughs) So when did you first see Conan? I would have been late teens i think it might have even been like going to film school and going oh i want to make like a dungeons and dragons fantasy type movie and i want to get into doing crazy shit like that having that realization that that was stuff deep down that i really really liked and want to play in i think that is when i caught up with conan or my video store days and then absolutely loving those first two movies Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer because they are just like proper sword and sandals psycho shit and from a maniac like John Milius just really going fully into his like psychoness just loved Mm. what's John Milius's deal he is one of the guys that comes up with your Spielbergs, your Scorsese's, your He's Coppola's. always mentioned in that, um, yeah, he's always mentioned in the same breath as those people. But I don't know what I really know him from. He's kind of like the odd duck because he's a massive Republican conservative, near anarchist, a gun toter. Uh, the character that uh, John Goodman plays oh, yeah. in The Big That's Lebowski right is based on John Milius. They look exactly the same. Mm. But he's like, you know, Steven Spielberg's best friend, even though Steven Spielberg's like one of the most... Even though Steven Spielberg is such a proper, you know, flannel-wearing Democrat, that they there must be something in their friendships where he's buddies with all of them. They're all like proper libs, and he's just like this proper red Republican. 
Um, but they all love him. They all work with him. And he's wrote Apocalypse Now. He directed mm. and wrote Big Wednesday, that surf movie. That's pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was like his biggest success until he did Red Dawn. Yeah, okay. So that's the one, real 80s touchstone, isn't it? Red Dawn. That's like the um, Tomorrow When the War Began style. Mm. The film. first PG 13 movie to get the rating PG 13. Interesting. Yes, I've never seen it. I know it's one of those touchstones that, like, 80s action fans love. Mm. I'm looking through his filmography now. Like, a lot of his stuff is uncredited rewrites is the things that I know him from. Like, two Dirty Harry movies. The first two. And probably all the stuff that we love from Dirty Harry is him. Like, he puts all the violence in there. He puts all the dialogue like make my day punk and like all that kind of stuff is all of like his kind of uh gun-toting philosophies going in there and the idea that the cop and the criminal are the same one has a badge is basically his doing in those scripts that's pretty cool i remember there's a lot of other uncredited re- like saving private ryan and things like mm-hmm. that Eraser. i think he came up with the bookends <laughs> for saving private ryan crazy Man, what's it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's wild. And this is co-written with Oliver Stone as well, which is insane to me. Oliver Stone is one of those filmmakers who I have a huge blind spot for, mm-hmm. but I've also watched JFK about ten times. Yeah, and that's a so you know who he is deep movie. in his soul. You know who he is. If I you know him intimately. <laughs> I know the style of Oliver Stone so intimately, but I've only seen maybe two of his movies. <laughs> that and and True Romance or something like that. Is that yeah. that's Oliver Stone, isn't it? Yeah. No, he's the other one, not True Romance. The other half of that screenplay. Oh, the um, the Woody Harrelson, Julia. Yeah, Lewis. Na- Natural Born Killers. That's the one. Mm. Natural Born Killers. Yeah, and I like both those movies. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not like, I'm not a huge Oliver Stone guy. So this is like hitting multiple blind spots for me. This movie, the Conan of it all, the John Milius of it all, the Oliver Stone of it all. The only thing about this film that I would say is my anchor is my Arnie. And this is his first starring role. Yeah. And that's. Maybe one of the reasons why I should have gone in on this earlier is because it's like pretty exciting and interesting from a historical perspective Mm. to see the beginnings of this guy's charisma. Like if you've seen Pumping Iron, which came out before this, which is this sort Mm -hmm. of hilarious (laughs) semi-scripted documentary about the world of It's like a (laughs) docu-comedy. It's, I would say, I reckon Pumping Iron is a big influence on some of the stuff that we do, like the sort of yeah. funny documentary series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it, and I would prob- say so. And probably without Pumping Iron, it's it's almost a blueprint for some of the other, like King of Kong or um, mm. some of those Louis Theroux docos where it's going down the rabbit hole of a weird little subculture and following some extremely charismatic freak. <laughs> <laughs> through his <laughs> through his journey, so if you've seen that, you already know the power of Arnold Schwarzenegger on camera. But mm-hmm. you've never seen him play a character, so I was curious: like, did he have acting chops from the beginning? Was it something that he learned over multiple films? 
was it did he come out intact so i was like very fascinated watching this movie to see the beginnings of this fucking movie star behemoth politician public figure he is the embodiment of the American dream. I don't think there's anyone in the history of America that captures that in such a solidified form as Arnie. He became a Kennedy for a few years, for goodness sake. I know. Yeah, it's so true. But ha- having said that, I just realized um, he's also in The Long Goodbye. He has a tiny little part in The Long Goodbye. Mm. Doesn't have any lines. Yeah. But still, like this is... Basically, his first starring role. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I was fascinated to go in and to see what that was all about. And if you are ready, Alexi, why don't we dive in and talk about it? Warrior. Thief. Conqueror. King. Conan. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Conan the Barbarian from 1982. And I'd love to tell you all about it, but instead, a good friend of mine named Alexi Teliopoulos has found a synopsis somewhere online, and he's going to read it out to me, and I'll decide whether I love it or hate it. Either way, I have to rate it. Alexi, what have you got? Cameron, I found the log line here on letterbox.com and I've chosen this one because it is the longest synopsis I've ever seen on this website. So I'm imagining it is quite thorough. A film adaptation of the classic sword and sorcery hero Conan the Barbarian. A horde of rampaging warriors massacre the parents of young Conan and enslave the young child for years on the wheel of pain. As the sole survivor of the childhood massacre, Conan is released from slavery and taught the ancient arts of fighting. Transforming himself into a killing machine, Conan travels into the wilderness to seek vengeance vengeance on Thulsa Doom, the man responsible for killing his family. In the wilderness, Conan takes up with thieves Valeria and Sabotai. The group comes upon King Orsric, who wants the trio of warriors to help rescue his daughter, who has joined Doom in the hills. That is very thorough. Mm-hmm. Pretty it's, thorough. Um, and hearing it again was like watching it again. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was, there was a lot of detours, a lot of names, a lot of like, he spends time in the hills, a lot of shit like that, that I was like, oh God, what's happening again? Let's streamline it. Come on. Mm-hmm. Let's make it simple. Here you go. You don't like his hill, his hill years with Lothar and the hill people mucking hey, it up in the hills? the Lothar and the hill people shit. <laughs> here's what I, here's the story. Kid, he's a little kid, he's, mm-hmm. but he's got good muscle definition already. His parents <laughs> both get their fucking heads chopped off. He gets put into slavery, but he's like, one day I'm going to get my revenge. Then he's mm-hmm. old. He's big and strong now. Great lats, great fucking pecs, great mm-hmm. shoulders on the guy. Awesome little gap tooth now. Excellent little gap tooth. You could fit a fucking coin in there and it would stay there all day. <laughs> Fire an arrow through that little sucker. I love Arnie's little gap tooth. And then he goes on a, a revenge mission. That's essentially what it is. But there are, mm. as that synopsis points out, 
a million fucking little detours where it's like, hey, guess what? He's going to fuck a witch for a bit. And she's <laughs> scary as hell. And then also he's like in this weird fucking Batman Dark Knight Rises prison for a long time where he's mm-hmm. taught how to fucking fight. That's crazy. How they teach him how to fuck through <laughs> this movie. <laughs> I, that's something I forget every time. I always remember, like, oh, the wheel of pain. I love that transition from little boy to teenager to man as he's pushing out, and you see his legs grow bigger. And then it's like, hey, you're pretty big now, sucker. Let's take you become a gladiator. And while we're there, I'm gonna teach you how to fuck chicks. <laughs> it is strange, isn't it? It's sort of like a. It's very fantasy. Whenever I see that stuff, mm. like I'm always like, oh, that's the rider. Getting horny. Yeah. Like, whenever there's a scene like that in fucking Game of Thrones or, yeah. or this type of thing or whatever, I'm always like, man, that's just the writer sitting alone in his house mm-hmm. being horny and thinking yeah. about fucking chicks. John Millius and Oliver Stone <laughs> at a typewriter going, all right, we're going to make this guy show this guy off somehow, Ollie. Let's go in. Oh, he puts a blanket around her naked shoulders. And then she's turned on, but it's like that's that's all I think of now. Whenever I see a sex scene in a movie, I'm like, that's just you've just admitted to us that you were really turned on while you were writing this movie. <laughs> that's so embarrassing. Have some just shame. John Milius and Oliver Stone sharing pages, going, he's gonna fuck a witch till she turns blue and electric. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was fascinated by this movie in equal measure. I was also bored by this movie. Mm. I don't know which one outweighs the other yet. I'm not entirely sure where I land, but I I think the bare bones of it were really cool. Like, I love a revenge story. I'm mm-hmm. never going to not love Hamlet that. It's the Hamlet of it all. Yeah, I'm never going to not love someone, a kid who watches his parents get murdered and then grows up to want to kill the guy that did it. I'm into that. That's cool. But then, yeah, again, there's the Lothar the Hill people shit where it's like, <laughs> there's just this narrator <laughs> who's like a wizard, I guess, and he's mm-hmm. um just gives so much detail over long winding shots of the hills and the landscape of all these names and m- mythological things that I don't know about. They just kind of keep me at a distance. You don't like the prophecies? The chronicler reading his tale as the witch is like, well, they told me one day I'm going to fuck a guy who's king and I think it's going to be you. I don't... See, I don't know if I don't like it. Mm. I just think that I a wall comes up whenever I'm watching that stuff where I'm like, oh, okay, like, can we just get back to the fucking the story, please? Like, do we have to go into this world for a bit? Well, let's get to your anchors then, because I want to talk about Arnie in this movie. It's his first starring role. Mm. How do you feel seeing him play one of his most dialogue-driven characters, weirdly enough, only because the rest of his characters for the next 10 years are not Mm. dialogue-driven, but uh, a character that's a lead, a character that's in the mold of like the hero's journey. Uh, these are all things kind of weirdly rare for Arnie. How did you feel soaking into Conan the Barbarian? I took this very seriously because obviously we've covered this already, but Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's, he, he's bigger than just an actor. He's, he's bigger than just a bodybuilder. He's an icon. 
He's pl- mm-hmm. he's one of the co-founders of Planet Hollywood. Yeah, along so- with Demi, Bruno, and Sly. Yeah, so he's like an icon, and we've known his face and his voice for so long. Our entire lives, people have been doing impressions of him. He's had comebacks. He's disappeared. You know, to reckon with Arnie in his first role, very hard to distance it from what we know about the guy already. So I watched Pumping Iron again before this because I wanted to reset my brain and Mm. see what he looked like and what he spoke like and what his eyes were like right before this. I wanted to kind of look at the young man and say and see the transition from documentary star to (laughs) actor. I had to see it happen. And I got to tell you, after watching the doco, I mean, he's basically acting in that. He's not really mm. being a real person. He's playing no. a villain in that. I don't. Arnie was a real person for like maybe five years before he came to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, like, he his charisma is fully intact in that already, and he knew he knows how to play the camera. He knows how to like be the heel. Watching him in this, it kind of felt like. You know when you watch a comedian do a serious role and you're sort of like, oh, wow, fuck, good for them. They can do it. Mm. They can they can do the shit. That's kind of how I felt watching Conan. I thought, man, fuck, good on him. He could just do it. Like it's like a two years later and he's just able to deliver dialogue. He looks like he's in the moment in every scene. He never looks like he's like out of his depth or faking it. When he's doing those pretty brutal fight scenes... Obviously, mm. they're not they're choreographed and they're not real, but he's selling it. Like it looks like yeah. he's it looks like he's in pain. It looks like he's trying to f- break these guys' bones and stuff. I was impressed, and then uh, and then I had to take a moment because I was like, "What is wrong with me? I'm just sitting here being like, wow, Arnie's really a good actor. Arnie's a good movie star.' It's like, yeah, I, we know this. We know this already. This is not a surprise. But I was just a bit shocked by how quick it happened. I assumed it would have taken mm. one or two movies for him to settle into his persona, but he's like, he's pretty much there right out of the gate. It's really interesting, right, to go back to this because I think we very rarely think of Arnie as an actor, someone that has to kind of emote and do the challenging things of acting. We think of him as a movie star. And I think his charisma is so natural and so innate that acting is just there for him. And watching him in this one, this is weirdly one of his more challenging roles because it is so physical. And it's one of the few times he has to grapple with emotions at a truly mythological level. Like he is... Uh, going through the full gamut of the hero's journey where he has to come to his destiny. And I think those are big fucking emotions for a guy like Arnie to play. And I love seeing him meet that head on and play into those big emotions. But then there's something about him that grounds this character as well. Like even the scene that we keep coming back to is him with the prophetic witch where she tells him his destiny. And I think that he grounds that scene in a really weird way. And there's another beautiful moment of acting, which happens later on, probably just after the halfway point, where he finally meets James Earl Jones, who is now 
that he was the guy that killed his parents. He was a leader of these uh, another barbarian group who then becomes a cult leader of this new religion of people worshipping these snakes. And he's the leader of that religion. And when he finally confronts him, James Earl Jones is like, yeah, I've got no idea who you are. I killed your parents your whole lives leading up to trying to kill me. I don't know who the fuck you are. And just Arnie's brokenness in that as he's being bloodied and beaten, I think is genuinely really good acting and maybe some of the best acting of his whole career. Yeah, I know. That's that's another interesting thing too is when you watch this, you're like, Man, we never really got to see more of this from him, did we? Like, there's very, very few times in his career has he played broken and defeated. You know Mm. what? Bizarrely, one of the closest, (laughs) one of the closest performances he gives, um, as far as vulnerability is concerned, is in Junior. Yeah, I. I mean, I love that movie. I'm taking this very seriously. Yes, you're completely right. And you've seen the profundity of it all. He is so wonderful in Junior. I can't believe Mm. I'm saying this. But he is like... I mean, I love Arnie. But he's so... He has it within him to be soft and gentle. Mm. We, We don't really get to see it that often. You know, Conan, you get to see it. Junior, you get to see it. I haven't seen that movie where he's like, daughter's a zombie. But I assume he taps into some of it there. I'm sure he does. It would be insane if he didn't. If he's like, I have to kill my daughter. (laughs) I must rip her head off. (laughs) And you know what? Maybe like the older he gets, when he's starting to slow down and be a bit more Mm. like of an old man figure in cinema, maybe, maybe he'll get to tap back into that again. The other times I've seen it is, do you remember those videos from like maybe three years ago? Maybe it was during early COVID where he just had like goats and stuff in his house. Oh, yeah. Do you remember those videos? His donkey. That was his donkey. Yeah, he has was his a donkey, pet right? donkey. Yeah, and like he has a pet goat, a pet donkey. And it was just like him feeding them carrots and shit like that yeah. at his farm in California. Presumably while smoking a giant cigar. Huge as cigar. Is always to do. Huge cigar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I remember reading an interview with chris pratt when you know how chris pratt's like married to he's an art yeah married to schwarzenegger's daughter or something is that yeah it? yeah i think so right i think so because he said uh, yeah it must be because in the interview he was talking about having arnie for a father-in-law and he is like he's the he is a gentle giant a really sweet man and he loves to give presents wow. i'm like that's a side of him we don't see i'd love to see more of that shit just like gentle Whoa. man Jingle all the way. We see him give a present out of that movie. That's true, but he's he's a bad father in that. Mm. And that's Maybe. the journey that that character goes on. <laughs> that's another Sinbad adventure. That is. That's one of the other Sinbads. <laughs> oh, and let's talk about James Earl Jones as the villain. Because I think that obviously there's some kind of meta casting going on getting the voice of Darth Vader to finally embody a Darth Vader-esque character. Yeah, his hair is the same. He's got the haircut of (laughs) Darth Vader's helmet. It's a cross between Darth Vader's helmet and Courtney Cox's bangless haircut from Scream 3. Scream 3, yeah, totally. (laughs) It's really bad do. One of the worst do's I've ever seen on anybody. You know what? It's yeah, kind one of, of the rare hair don'ts in cinema. <laughs> it's actually a bit Rick James-esque. 
oh, it is. Like, the length of it, totally. <laughs> and especially, just... like, <laughs> older Rick James. He's, <laughs> yeah, like, got yeah. the, like, the kind of chubby body. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, James Earl Jones is um, fucking fantastic. Isn't mm-hmm. this... This is something... He's gr- He's always been great. We've always known he's great. You know, he's fucking two iconic voices. He's played a lot of iconic acting roles too. But he's just... Yeah, He's. it's something about him you don't really take into account is like... He's, um, he's game. He's like up for mm. it. Like, it's kind of cheesy. They've got him in this terrible haircut. He's wearing these ridiculous outfits. He turns into a snake at one point and stuff. Yeah. It's kind of cool to see it like a an actor who's just up for it. Who's like, yeah, mm. yeah, let's camp it up. Make me as crazy as you want. I don't care. I'll still sell this shit. It's so true, right? Because he's such an esteemed actor, one of like the theater greats of all time, the greatest voice ever put to a recording, and mm. he hams it up and he gets into the evilness. The first time you see him where he cuts off Arnie's mum's head yeah, is so evil and he delights great, in it so much. Great operatic moment where he kind of turns away from her really slowly mm-hmm. and then whips back around and chops her friggin' dome off. I loved oh, it. I love that. I love watching magic. a Yeah, like in the same way that it was a thrill for me to watch Arnold do his first acting role, it was as much a thrill to watch like an esteemed actor play something really hammy in camp. It kind of reminded me of... um, What did I watch... I watched Marathon Man recently mm. and Laurence oh, Olivier. I love him in that movie. Really hams it up and camps it up as this like Dr. Mengel type um, <laughs> Nazi. An evil dentist. Yeah. And, uh, and it's sort of, there is a real thrill you get when you watch like a serious actor do something mm. psycho. And I think him being so involved and like game for all the bloodiness of this film as well because this is like if you think of it as the adults answer to star wars coming a few years later five years later the kids that saw it in cinema have a bit of bloodlust now and obviously some blood are rushing to the strange parts of their body they want to okay. see the t- we, what, what, they want to see the a okay. i'm talking about young the change that young men go through okay. where they become horny and okay. hungry for blood. And in this movie, we get a combination of those two things. Mm. But I love the violence in this movie. I love the way swords slice through almost as if they're cutting in like a fucking bag full of juice. Like just the way the blood splats out of them, I think is so violent. And it just, it really satisfies something deep and carnal in me to see squibs going off in movies. Yeah, a lot of good squib work going on here. A lot of interesting squib work. I'm uh, I'm a sucker for blood too, but um, it's the sandals I can't get past. You know, like it's the sword. That's the, so funny. The sword. I'm fine with the sword, yeah. but the sandals. You know, it's like I like uh, a samurai film. We get swords mm. in that, but everyone is, for the most part, you know, covered up. Their skin's covered up. They're mm-hmm. wearing nice little outfits. But these guys, they got their freaking toes out. They got their tits out. <laughs> they got freaking 
ass out. Everyone's wearing like a freaking loincloth G-banger. You see everyone's ass in you this movie, And it's just like, put some fucking clothes on or some shit. Mm. You're carrying these big ass swords. You're going to cut yourself. Oh, man, that's something you brought up interesting about this. I'd never really noticed it before because I guess it's been a few years since I've seen this. But there's so many allusions to like Japanese cinema in this. There's a lot of the Seven Samurai in it, a lot of the Akira Kurosawa samurai films in here that I'd never noticed before. But there's something from this ghost movie, Kwaidan, which is one of my favorite horror movies. It's like a ghost anthology film uh, by Kobayashi. And in it, they have this thing that they've, taken literally from it where uh they paint their skin to like avoid uh. spirits and that's exactly from quietan like if you uh, look at yeah. shots from quietan back to front with this movie they're identical it's pretty crazy and i'd never noticed it before but i think that's where this film comes from and what you would like mostly would be if this was the matrix with swords right yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's um, because there is a lot in this that I that I dig, and I like the Matrix for that reason. Like, I like world building. I mm. like the idea of mythology and stuff that's going on outside of what we see, and the implication that these battles have been raging for you know generations. All that stuff is quite interesting to me. But there's an aesthetic thing about mm. this type of sorcery film that I just can never really get past. I'm not a big fan of Vikings for the same reason. Mm-hmm. You know, all that kind of like thatched roofs and fucking dirt and mud and helmets and clunky armor. I can never mm. fully get into. But you're <laughs> right. about to fucking puke talking about it right now. <laughs> you're right. And loincloths, everyone's ass. But if you're right, if this was essentially just some neo-futuristic mm-hmm. computer world... You know, yeah, sure, I'd probably be like, yeah, fuck yeah, Conan the Digital Destroyer rules. <laughs> Conan the Hacker is sick. What were some of your other Conan highlights of watching this movie? You know what, I you mentioned the um, face painting scene, which they allegedly mm. ripped off from Quidon. I love that, too. I thought that was cool. Mm. Um, the I spirituality all- elements of it all. Yeah, like, I liked pretty much all the fight scenes. I liked... The way it ended, I like the idea of, like, this story will continue and you're going to see mm. more of it. He he eventually takes his place as the rightful king or whatever and that story's for another time. I like the vibe of all that stuff. It was almost enough to make me want to put on Conan the Destroyer as well because it leaves it in such a way where you kind of think, man, yeah, there's more adventures. I kind of want to see what else he's up against. I I, you know, maybe there's a bigger fucking snake that he has to put a sword through the head of. I don't know. Conan the Destroyer is not well loved. I like it almost as much. It's directed by one of the great genre hacks of all of cinema, Richard Fleischer, who does Soylent Green, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Torah, 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 Fantastic Voyage, the other Conan movie, Red Sonja with Conan and, uh, is it Brigitte Nielsen? God, I don't know. What's that? Yeah, Brigitte Nielsen. It's What's like it a called? Conan Red spin-off. Sonja? Red Sonja. It's a Conan spinoff, and it's most famous for Conan saying the way that he would punish his children is forcing them to watch Red Sonja. Is <laughs> is it um is Arnie in it? Uh he is in it. He's in Red Sonja. Is he is he playing Conan? 
Not in name, but yes. I think there's like some kind of rights issue because Conan and Red Sonia, they're all like Dino De Laurentiis who has crazy rights. Um, but you would like Conan the Destroyer because it's like, I think it would be interesting because it's a more straight up and down fantasy movie with just a crazy cast. Like Grace Jones is in it. Mako comes back to play like the chronicler character. And um, it's like basically... A crazy, it's like just insane, stupid fantasy story. But there's like one part in it where there's a princess who they must protect her virginity or something like that. And the bodyguard that is protecting her virginity is Wilt Chamberlain, famous basketball player who is well known for his record of having slept with 20,000 women to his estimation in his life. What the fuck? Yeah, he and he did the math. He fully did the math Schumacher style. Where he's like, well, of course, you know, I averaged 2.3 women a day. And then I divided that by half because, you know, there'd be some days that I missed out on. So I was conservative in doing that. And then I uh, minus 15 because that's when I lost my virginity. And then I times it by whatever. He's like, yeah, it's around 20,000 women. It's like, it's cra- he's crazy. And that's the guy that's protecting this girl's virginity. Oh, what the fuck? How do these people find the time? You know what I well, mean? Like, a- I'm, it's like it's a full-time job to do that. Well, he did say that his two loves were women and basketball, and he always regretted that he feels like the real thing in life would have been not to sleep with thousands of women, but to sleep with one woman thousands of times. He did say that in his <laughs> later days. <laughs> Well, this is a man after my own heart. I mean, that's 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 romantic. Um, as a man in a long term relationship, I will I will say I've probably I've probably fucked as much as Will Chamberlain, but it's just one <laughs> one person one person for wow. fifteen years. The Will Chamberlain of monogamy, Cameron yes, James. Yes, I love to make a love to my life partner. <laughs> <laughs> that's wow, so that's funny. it. Well, you know what? Maybe I will watch that. I, and you and Ben Russell were talking about Destroyer the other day, and that kind of piqued my interest. I've been, I mean, you, who was it? Was it Ben Russell who said that it was a bit more psychedelic? Um, mm. In its way, well, I mean, I'm kind of intrigued by that. It is a bit more psychedelic, it's a little bit weirder. Um, and uh, I remember there's like a Hall of Mirrors type thing in there. It's just a bit more straight, weird fantasy. Whereas Conan is a little more operatic, a little bit more, not quite austere because it's so bloody, but I think the film is so aligned with Basil Polidorus's score, which is just so percussive and so epic and so spirited and growing that I think it is hard to move past that score. And that might be part of what's hindering you from getting into the campness of this movie. Yeah, I wish I was more into it because when I'm looking at the posters for like Red Sonja and Conan the Destroyer now, and like I do in theory like the aesthetic of these posters. There's Mm. something quite fun and... I don't know, like heavy metal about it all, which I kind of mm. like. But so maybe I need to just put my scruples aside and go in on the fucking go in on these other two. Maybe you it would even be easier for you to go into the more psycho, strange Conan knockoffs that come around. Like I really love Beastmaster. 
um, which was a big kind of video store era type movie. And there's one by Lucio Fulci, the Giallo master, who called Conquest that came out hot on the heels of Conan, like a year after. And it's a co-production between Spain, Mexico, Italy, the United States, where they made this big, cheapy, crazy fantasy movie that is such a Conan ripoff, but it might be more in the fun area that you need it to be to get into that kind of stuff. That's kind of fun. I, l- I like the idea of these knockoffs. I, um, I mean, I just watched Mandy and... Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of loved the look and vibe of that mm. film. You know, that, that kind of, kind of like, modern heady, heavy metal album cover. Yeah, I was fantasy. into it. It was it was quite fun. So I think if I want, maybe I want something that's more in that psycho mm. vein than like a classic biblical look. You know. Well, Cameron, we're talking total reboots here. Mm. There is a reboot of this with Jason Momoa from like two thousand and nine or some shit. I've seen it. It sucks. It's boring. It's no good. Momoa is kind of compelling. He seems like a good Conan, but there has been a long gestating third Conan film for a long time. At one point in the 80s, there was almost Conan the Conqueror, which then they just took that script when they couldn't get it to happen. And in the 90s, turned it into Cull the Conqueror, starring Kevin Sorbo. Are you fucking serious? How is everyone yes, able to do this, this shit? How are people just <laughs> able to just rip off? Like, you've got Red Sonja, Carl the Conqueror. How I the think fuck are you all, allowed to do this shit? I think they are all, what's the, what's the guy, the creator called? Um, Robert E. Howard? I think they're all Robert E. Howard properties. <laughs> okay. And I think they're just like, yeah, whatever. They're just based on all these billions of stories written in these worlds. But there's one called uh, King Conan or The Legend of Conan that's been in development for a really freaking long time. And there's a great quote from Arnie about that long gestating project. I'm going to play it for you now. When it comes to the movie, the sad stuff about all of this is when there's an estate like this, the Robert E. Howard estate. The guy that has the rights is some young guy and he's trying to figure out how to get his way through Hollywood. In the meantime, we have been trying to convince him for years that the way to go forward is to come back and hire a really great director and try to do another Conan movie. Have me play King Conan when Conan is like 70 years old and he's disgusted by sitting on the throne and being the king. And then something happens after that. It's not really that far from creating a finished script. The only one that really has to pull the trigger there is the people who own the Conan rights to do a movie. (laughs) Who was that? That was not Arnie. I got Ben Russell to read a quote for me. (laughs) I sent him the quote from Arnie. And I said, can you read this? (laughs) It wasn't until the very end that I was like, is this... Arnie? And then the, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he's definitely not saying that in a fucking interview. <laughs> well, it is it is a real quote. I paraphrased it a bit, but that's a real quote that they've been trying to make this King Conan movie where he's 70 years old, like the kind of end of the movie, yeah. the postscript yeah. uh, coming back. And it's they've been trying to make it for so long. I feel like they're always close to getting it to happen. 
and they're like, let's go to Netflix, let's do this, let's do that. And I genuinely think if they make it, and if they had made it in the last couple of years, especially as like a miniseries or something with Arnie back as Conan, it could have been the freaking thing that everyone's been trying to find for the last 10 years, which is a Game of Thrones equal. I think the only way you could have equaled something as big as that would be to get the icon to come back and play one of his signature roles like we do every three years when he comes back to play Terminator in some <laughs> yeah, kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a fun idea. You know, if that happened, that that would probably be the thing that would make me watch all of them. Mm. Well, there's I only pro- one more you need to watch, dude. I gotta watch Red Sonja. I gotta watch Kroll, <laughs> the fucking Conqueror. I gotta there's, and then I gotta watch all the Kevin Sorbo films. You know, uh, of course, is- you gotta watch Hercules, the crazy adventures of, or whatever yes. it's called. And I gotta watch the Walking Tall sequel that he's in. Oh, a great movie! The great picture, the Walking Tall sequel starring <laughs> Kevin Sorbos. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting. Like, there's there's enough here that makes me feel like I could fully go back and dive into some of these mm. films. It's just a mental block for me because I do get mm. a little bit bored by all the shit that I've already talked about. But I would like to I would like to be more into it because it's a fun world and the violence is cool and all that stuff. Let me pitch to you this because you know the, what he says in that quote. It's like we got to get a cool creative director is what they want for it because there's kind of scripts existing, but they I, it sounds like they want an author director. And there's been someone that's kind of mentioned. I looked up has anyone talked about directing it? The only person I could find that has talked about wanting to do a Conan movie with Arnie was a collaborator of Arnie on some of his classics, one of his true classics. Is Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> yeah, that's one of your guys, right? Yeah, one of my guys, Robocop, of course, Total Recall, the, the namesake of this podcast that we've never talked about. Um, he was trying to make a movie with Arnie called Crusade, which was a big blockbuster 90s era action movie set in the Crusades in that kind of medieval, not fantasy, medieval action sword and sandal style movie that never came to fruition um our buddies over at cancelled movies podcast have done a really good audio recreation from the script of what that is and i feel like paul Paul verhoeven is still hungry all these decades later to make that movie with his freaking guy arnie yeah right that's kind of cool i mean uh, yeah you're a big verhoeven guy so yeah if you think it would be if you think he'd do a good job, I trust you. I trust your opinion on that. The other people that I wrote down that I thought would do cool, because it sounds like they want a freaking author, not just like a Game of Thrones guy like Miguel Sapochnik or like Neil Marshall. I put down Edgar Wright. I'm like, let's get him to do something like this. That's get me back on board with Edgar uh, or James Wan. But the other person I wrote down was a director of Triple R. SS Rajamuli, I thought would be very sick at doing some big ass sword sandals action Hollywood blockbuster. Bring some of that uh, Hollywood flavor to Hollywood. Well, it does feel like um, a lot of kind of prestige directors now want to work in this genre sort of fair. So mm. it would be kind of fun to see someone have a crack at it. I mean, David Lowry made that Green Knight movie a couple of years ago. Yeah. Like people. 
people could do it. You know, people could, we could pull mm. Edgar Wright in. We could get anyone to do it. We just had the Northman. That was a big blockbuster. That is basically the same plot as Conan because it's also based on Hamlet. Yeah, hectic shit, hectic stuff. I also never saw the Northman. You would like it even less than I did, <laughs> and I barely scraped by on that one. <laughs> yeah, this is something I can't get my head around. But you know, if it was full psycho like that Mandy guy. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, that would be sick. Cosmados, right? Yeah, if Cosmados had a crack at it and did some Fuck. weird psychosexual horror shit with it, maybe that would be fun. If it was just a full hour of the prophetic witch sex scene, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> it's Arnie as a 70-year-old man. Get down, get off of me. <laughs> Having sex with the prophetic witch, turning into electricity. Uh, what about um, character actors in this? It's kind of tough because Ooh. who do we have in who do we have in this list? I don't know a lot of them, you know? Well, there is someone who's pretty iconic in that kind of character actor sense is Mako. The monogrammed actor, Mako, um, who is Academy Award nominee, Best Supporting Actor uh, for The Sand Pebbles, but later in his life would go on to be known as one of the great voice actors of all time, playing in stuff like Avatar The Last Airbender as Uncle Iroh and uh, stuff like Samurai Jack. He's very beloved as a voice actor later on on like lots of kids cartoons and uh, Cartoon Network shows, Nickelodeon shows. But he is genuinely someone who is quite a bit of a legend. And I think he's great. He plays the chronicler that is in that little crew towards the end. Not in the threesome of him and the two thieves, but the other guy. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm uh, this guy was great. He was really cool. Love that. We'll give, let's give him the award, god damn it. Yeah. We got to give Mako the award. He also played Splinter in that TMNT animated movie from like t- 2006 or whatever. That's iconic <laughs> to me. If you play Splinter, you're a freaking legend of character actors. <laughs> hey, he's also in Bulletproof Monk, starring um Tony Shalhoub. <laughs> Tony Shalhoub, right? Bulletproof Monk. No, dude. That's the show, Monk, you dumbass. Okay. Oh, God, I'm sorry. He also appears in the TV show, Monk, playing Master Z, Mr. Monk versus the Cobra. So, So he's in both... He's worked with both of the Monks. Yeah. He's worked with Bulletproof Monk and Regular Style Monk. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Congratulations, Mako. You deserve it. Um, You're great. Rest in peace, brother. We miss you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to give a little special award out right now um, to that gap tooth. We've already shouted it out already, but I feel like Arnie's gap tooth doesn't really get enough play. I don't even know if it still mm-hmm. exists. Yeah, did he close the gap? Let's have a look. <laughs> Was that wasn't his, one of his policies as mayor of California to close the gap? <laughs> I'm having a look. You know what? He's had some fucking teeth worked on. This guy's closed the gap. Because I'm looking at some pictures of the gap tooth, like he got he got the gap closed in the '90s, man. I'm looking at it's there in Commando, it's there in mm-hmm. T2. But by the time he's the governor of California, the gap has well and truly been closed. God, he should have closed it up, Tom Cruise style. Put a whole extra tooth in there. I, I agree. I agree. It's, it's just you know what? It's lovely to see the gap back where it used to be. 
I think he should bring back the gap. I think he should put more gaps between more of his teeth. Yes. Yes. Now we're talking. Now we're getting creative with this. Every actor should have standalone teeth that just pop out of their gums like little chiclets, like little Tic Tacs. I think that's what they should do. If you become an actor, you have to have gap tooth widen surgery where someone just goes in and widens your teeth out, you know? Because you can't be too perfect on the big screen. you got to have an eccentricity about you. And I think Arnie's was his gap tooth. I mean, Yeah, that's the one eccentric thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking gap tooth. And now he's normal. Now he's totally mm-hmm. normal since he got that closed. So a big shout out to the gap tooth. Um, bring mm-hmm. it back, Arnie. Bring back the gap. Yeah, I wish I had a gap tooth. I think it's pretty. I think it's really freaking sick. I love them. I wish I had a gap tooth, but on the bottom, <laughs> like a cartoon hobo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I could just stick a straw in there and just drink, have little drinks yeah. through there. That That's would be I awesome. Would. A practical gap tooth. Come on, that's magic, dude. That's magic in the making. Guys, you know what? That's that's the end of the episode, I think. And it has been a pleasure talking about Conan to you, Cameron. And I love you. I love you. T- I love you too. I love you too. I know. I w- I'm sorry that I couldn't get into the sandals as much as as you do, but you know, I I got I tried really hard and I got as close as I'll ever come. That's what I really appreciate because I knew that this was something that you were not looking forward to. We've I've wanted to do Conan on the podcast for a long time. We finally got there and um, it was okay. It was okay. You know, I wish you had come around to it, but you can only be how you are. You cannot pretend to be someone else. And that's the lessons we learned from Conan via Nietzsche. <laughs> That's true. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you've become stronger from this. That is true. Thank you. Thank you. That is true. Did you like that it began with that Nietzsche quote? No. <laughs> I didn't think you would. <laughs> I hated that. <laughs> if you want to listen to more from Cameron and I, you can head over to patreon.com and sign up for bonus content. Ben Russell stuck around with us last week to talk about Bullet Train, which is Cam's favorite movie of the year so far. Uh, so you can hear him gush all over Bullet Train, how much he loves that movie. Yeah, I don't remember it exactly that way, but... Sure, yeah. Give us five bucks a month and hear me apparently gush about my new favorite flick. <laughs> he loves David Leitch. He thinks he's funny and cool. I think David Leitch is the best comedy director working in Hollywood at the moment. <laughs> Move aside, Judd Apatow. There's a new king of comedy. <laughs> they, and his name be Leitch. Uh, that's... Oh, what are we going to do next time? You know what? Next week, I think we should... Re-enroll in high school for a little mm. fast times at Ridgemont High. Oh, hell yeah. I, we love teen movies, and this is an absolute classic. Love teen movies. Love the penmanship mm-hmm. of Cameron Crowe, who of wrote course. this book. He's a script writer. He wrote the movie 
Fast Times at Richmond High. That's what we're going to be discussing next week's podcast. Um, great to hang out, dude. And please, everybody, subscribe to Grass House, the YouTube channel, because we're getting closer and closer to our new video series, Finding Jesus, coming out. It's a documentary from us that is in the vein of pumping iron. We are... <laughs> Two charismatic yet strange characters that a camera crew mm. are following around for a couple of weeks. That's true. Subscribe to Grass House. Hang tight for Finding Yeezus. It is going to change your world, my world, Alexi's world, and mm-hmm. the world of documentary forever. And Wayne's world and yep. the world, the entire world will be changed. And Jurassic by World. Jurassic Dominion. There's Dominion, there's quite a few implications of what will go on in Jurassic World Dominion if you watch Finding Jesus. <laughs> there is actually. There is. Yes. All we right. We do thanks, go guys. on about Dominion. Uh-huh.